0: Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself in your word and fully and finally in the person of Jesus. We thank you that you have shown us who you are and what you're like. You've shown us who we truly are and what we're like. We thank you for your word that is eternal, which brings life, hope and joy. And so we ask as we spend our time in this word, that you would help us take hold of those things, uh, that we might be stirred to live lives that really please you and that bring us great joy also. So we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, what are your big hopes? What have been your big hopes? Um, In my 20s, uh, mine were music festivals. Yes, Big Day Out or... Um, Splendour in the Grass, which is where you go up to Byron Bay and hang out with the hippies. and um, I just loved music festivals, gigs. And even though um, the gig might be months away, I could almost smell the sweat of thousands of people crammed into a big top in the middle of summer. Yeah, If you've been to a festival, you know what it goes. On. I could almost touch the person who would crowd surf above you. And just that thought was enough to energize me for those coming weeks and months until the gig came. Yeah? Hope is essential to our well-being. It gets us out of bed in the morning. It fuels our work, our rest, our play, our relationships. It gives us our lives purpose. And so it actually shapes the decisions that we make, the actions that we take. And if you think about hope There's a past, present and future dimension. And so firstly, hope is the good thing that we anticipate in the future. We don't actually have it yet, but it does have a goal. It does have content that lays ahead. And so for me, this was the music festival. Secondly, it has a present dimension, which is the anticipation of that good thing to come. Yeah, And this is the power of hope. Because even though we don't have it, it energises us. It stirs us. It keeps us going towards that good thing ahead. Which, of course, thirdly means we actually need a reason for that hope. We need a reason that lays in our past that we can and ought to anticipate this good thing. Is this expectation based in reality or wishful thinking? I was confident that I'd be going to the gig because I had the ticket. In my hand. Hope has a past, present, and future dimension. Now, everyone has hope, yeah? Everyone needs something to get them out of bed and give their lives meaning. But we're going to see this morning that Peter unpacks a hope that God has rewritten for the Christian a rewritten past, present, and future hope. And so, this morning, this is an opportunity for you to either celebrate and be stirred by the hope you have in the gospel of Jesus, or for some of you who have not committed yourself to following Jesus, this is an invitation to see what this hope is and to take hold of it. So let's do that together. Let's dive right in. And uh, we'll start in uh, verse 1, a quick bit of context. Um, It's important to have your Bible open in front of you so you can see what we're doing here. Um, Verse 1, we see that Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing to God's elect exiles. Now, my new Bible is the new NIV, which we're kind of transitioning to. But if you've got an older one, it'll say God's elect strangers. So he's writing to Christians in the first instance who were scattered outside the area of Palestine, in the area that we now call Turkey. And so these people are... God's elect elect well that's someone who's been chosen yeah we elect a prime minister we elect the captain of a team and so far this sounds pretty good this is written to God's chosen people but what's the next word chosen to be exiles an exile is a refugee someone who's actually cut off and away from their native home so he's writing to people who have been chosen by God to be refugees. Now that doesn't sound as positive anymore, does it? But it's actually key to understanding the hope that he's going to unpack, the hope of the Christian, because our native homeland is not in Palestine. It's not even in Terrigal on the central coast. Yeah, It lies ahead, beyond this life and outside of this world in heaven. And unless we get our heads around that, we trust that to be true, we're going to be frustrated and disappointed people. But this hope beyond this life has massive implications for this life. And so let's unpack those, the three dimensions of hope. Firstly, God rewrites our past hope. Pick it up there in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. Peter can't help but start his letter with praise. Praise is a worship word ascribing honour and glory. He's blessing God. Why is he doing that? Because in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what he's done here is introduced the reason for our hope. The reason that lies in our past. And what does he say the reason for that hope is? It's that we've been given new birth. New birth. So what is new birth? Let's think about that for a moment. Have you ever been called by someone or asked by someone, you're not one of those born-again Christians, are you? Yeah, Like as though there's two types. There's those normal ones that just kind of keep to themselves, believe in a guy in the sky, but I can manage that one. Then there's the weird, wacky, full-on, always talking about Jesus one, the born-again Christian. Yeah, you one of those? You're not one of those, are you? Um, it's a term that was kind of um, born and propagated by those American televangelists. You remember them? And it's kind of got a bad name that's just stuck. But it was actually Jesus who came up with the term. Do you remember John chapter three? A man named Nicodemus, a Jew. A prestigious Jew, a Pharisee, a member of the ruling council, he came to Jesus at night, and he was all confused. He's like, Jesus, who are you? What what do you want about? And what did Jesus say to him? He said, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. What does Nicodemus do? Well, the literal thought of actually going back in his mummy's tummy freaks him out, as I'm sure it would his mum. Yeah? He's just like, what are you talking about? How can I do that? Jesus goes on. He says, to, he says that only the person born of water and the spirit will see the kingdom. Water and spirit. A clear reference back to that Ezekiel passage that we had read, yeah? where God said one day he's going to sprinkle his people with water to cleanse them from their impurities. He's actually going to put a new spirit in them to replace a dead, hard heart of stone with a living, breathing, pumping heart of flesh. And Jesus says, without this, you won't see the kingdom of God. His point is, hey Nicodemus, you're a prestigious, upright Jew. You're a member of of God's chosen race. Congratulations. Based on this, you will not see God. Now, friends, here's the offensive edge of the gospel, which says you are not okay. You're not okay. If the only birth that you have known is of your mummy's tummy, you will not see God. No matter your heritage, your occupation, your church attendance, your contribution to society, you have been born outside of any hope of ever seeing your maker. That's offensive. People put lots of effort and energy into presenting themselves as decent human beings, effort to do more of this and cut out that. But Jesus says if that is the reason, if that is the grounds for your hope of seeing God, going to be horribly disappointed. So serious is our rebellion against God, our sinful condition that Jesus says we don't need refining, we need rebirth. We need remaking, recreating with a new heart which is the very centre of who we are. Jesus says that you need to stop and start your life over again. That's a hard thing and not a very attractive idea for many people who are succeeding in anything. Yeah, What are you talking about? My job's good. My career's looking bright. I've got a decent family. Look at where I live. Hello, I'm on the central coast. You're telling me I've got to stop and start life all over again? Of course, for people who have hit rock bottom, it's actually an easier concept to wrap your head around a fresh start, a new beginning. But that's not many of us. That's not many people on the coast. Jesus says, no matter your age, your achievements, your status in your community, with your friends, you must start life over again. Now, notice the role that you play here in your rebirth. Verse 3, God has given us new birth. If you've got an ESV, it says God has caused us to be reborn. This is not a joint effort between us and God. It's not as if he goes, all right, here's a bit of willpower, now get to work in recreating yourself. This is completely, entirely, from beginning to end, the work of God. His free choice which makes sense of the image that Jesus gives us because none of us actually chose to be born physically. That was the choice of our parents, hopefully. None of us chose to be born spiritually. yeah. That was the decision, the choice of our heavenly father. And birth, it's just such a miracle, isn't it? And and I didn't get this, of course, until I had my own kids and, and witnessed the birth. In fact, birth number three, um, I actually delivered myself in the lounge room. He was in a bit of a hurry, and I just caught him. It was, a, it was awesome. And um, so if anyone needs some tips on childbirth, you know, I'm the man. You just catch them and cuddle them, and it's easy. Yeah, um, It's a miracle. Anyone's witnessed the birth, it's a miracle. And I know you ladies don't call it a miracle. You just... But afterwards, it's a miracle. It's the same with the rebirth that comes from God spiritually. But you can't go out and reborn yourself, can you? Jesus says you must be reborn. The complete, full, free work of God. So if I can't reborn myself, what can I do? Well, in that conversation with Jesus and Nicodemus, just a few verses later, Jesus says to Nicodemus, I myself must be lifted up so that anyone, everyone who believes in me may have eternal life. Jesus says it is his lifting up on the cross. It's his death that he dies on the cross where all of God's wrath is fully and finally in full strength poured out on his son Jesus, though he had not sinned. Jesus says it is believing in him and this work that brings us eternal life. It's to trust that God sacrificed his own son to make it possible, even possible, for your rebirth. And let's get one thing clear. Your trust in God, doesn't then bring about your rebirth as though that was your decision. This trust is a fruit of God's free, enlivening work within us. But that's a sermon for another day. This is all God's work, which Jesus says we must put our trust in. And so let me ask you right now, let's just pause. Have you fronted up to the confronting words of Jesus... When he says, you are not okay. You will not see your maker unless you are reborn. Friends, Jesus says there is no hope apart from being reborn. Have you put your trust in him? But Peter gives us another reason for our hope, One that actually precedes the rebirth. Have a look at verse 3. Having spoken about God the Father, he says, In his great mercy he has given us new birth. Now mercy is one of those words that's used hundreds of times through the Bible. We speak of it, we sing of it, we pray of it. But are we clear on what it is, what it means? Um, did you ever play or do you know what the game mercy is? is as a kid? Nah, no one has today. Let me tell you, let me educate you. You missed out on some fun. It's where you and your mate, maybe your little brother in my case, you lock hands, right? So you join hands like that, lock together, and on the count of three, go! And what you've got to try and do is try and break the wrist of your little brother, yeah? And you're just in this match And then it's at that point where usually the big brother over the little brother has got them at the point where the wrist's about to break where he calls out, mercy! And that's the point of the game where you have to stop. Where you go, I'm going to show you pity and compassion in your miserable state. That's kind of like the mercy (laughs) described in the Bible. With a couple of important distinctions. The first one is... God is not the source of our misery. We are. Our sin is. But we are miserable. And he does show pity on us. But secondly, this is not a game between friends or family. See, God's mercy speaks of his loving kindness awarded to the undeserving. Loving kindness awarded to the undeserving. Now, we're familiar with the concept of awards. It's just the way of our culture. Um, where we award the elite, the winners. So the, the best singer is going to win the voice, yeah? And um, the skinniest fat person is going to win the biggest loser. Um, it, it's just what we do as a culture. We, we, we award the great winners are grinners. But God's mercy is totally countercultural because it's His loving kindness that is awarded to losers. Real, literal, Loses to the undeserving. In fact, more than undeserving, to the ill-deserving. Colossians 1 speaks of our sinful behaviour as having made us enemies of God. Personal enemies with the Creator, with the Almighty God, engaged in a war that was not going to end well for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Because we have followed our own desires and not God's desires, we were deserving of his wrath, of his judgment. But the very next verse, verse 4, says, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. Friends, that is the repeating pattern of the Bible where our sin is met by God's mercy which brings us into new life, a rebirth which brings us a hope and the fruit of this hope we are told is our joy which we're going to come to and God's glory over and over and over again. That pattern is repeated. God rewrites our past hope, our reason for hoping, because he is merciful and because he has given us the gift of rebirth. Secondly, God rewrites our present hope. Because when you're born, you're born into something. As great as the birthing is, the focus then moves on to what comes ahead. You're born into a hospital or a lounge room, in my kid's case. You're born into a country, uh, in a period of history. And when you put all of that together, humanly speaking, that means you have been born into a life of hope or hopelessness. Just last night at Saturday V, there were four brand new babies with us who had been fostered out to different homes. And I've heard some of the stories of where these kids have come from. Brand new little babies. These are kids who, humanly speaking, were born into a hopeless situation, a hopeless future. But because of merciful intervention, they've now been brought into a family who are going to love them and they'll know something of hope. Peter describes God as having mercifully intervened in our hopeless situation. And he's actually brought us into what he calls a living hope. A living hope. Now he's going to unpack this some more in a bit. But firstly, the hope is living because it comes, have a look there in verse 3, through the, in, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So it actually comes through a man who lives never to die again. And so our hope, everything we long for and the anticipation we have, is not grounded in wishful thinking. It is not grounded in a vision or someone's interpretation. It's grounded in God's work in history, an event in time and space that you can push and prod with all the overwhelming evidence to support it. And if you haven't done that, if you're not convinced on that, come to life that you heard spoken about. It is overwhelming. And so to the Christian, when Peter says in chapter 3, verse 15, he tells you to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you, why do you hope? He says, be ready to give the answer for the reason for your hope. So, of course, one of your reasons is the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. The body has never been found. God raised a dead man to life. That is what your hope is grounded in. That is why your hope lives. But it also lives because the goal, the actual content in the future, lives, which we're going to get to. But our anticipation, that that energy, we don't have it yet, but we await it. That energy lives. Which is why the Bible speaks of hope so differently to how we normally do. We usually um, you know, say, I hope this great weather's going to hang around. Meaning we're not at all sure that it will be. I'd like it to, but I can't be confident that it will. We put a big fat question mark after the things that we hope for. As if to prepare ourselves for frustration and disappoint, disappointment. But the Bible speaks of a hope which brings about an unmatched anticipation, a confident anticipation. Because by looking back to the death and resurrection of Jesus, an event in history, we have confidence to look ahead to what we don't yet have but what has been promised to us. I hope that he's big and brilliant, which he now goes on to describe. But before we look at it, do you remember in Luke, we've just finished up, we heard Jesus say, That the legit follower of him, the person who's truly been reborn, is the person who is going to pick up their cross daily, deny himself and follow him in the way of suffering. I don't know about you, but that still smacks me in the face every time I consider it. Whoa. But he says that knowing the hope that is at the end of that road. He says that knowing the hope that he's behind that narrow door that Dale took us through last week. And so God has rewritten our present hope, one that will energise us in the Christian life, which will be hard. Thirdly, God rewrites our future hope. Because prior to being reborn, our hopes are small and petty in light of eternity. And they're actually, compared to a living hope, they're dying hopes. Because whatever it is, it's actually going to die with us. It's going to the grave with us. Consider the hope that you see your friends and family and people in the community. I mean, what is it? We need something to fuel us. So someone's got something. As I look around, I see people hanging their hope in relationships, yeah? It's a big one. Relationships that so often sour because of abuse, betrayal and selfishness. Or even those good ones, those precious ones, they end, they perish with death. Hope in relationships is ultimately a dying one. I see people putting their hope in wealth despite a financial crisis that will just fade that wealth in a moment. Despite the fact that it cannot, will not ward off that final enemy of death. Here's a big one. I see people putting their hope in sport. Yeah? Either their ambitions or <laughs> I just marvel at grown men who cry because a guy didn't kick a ball through some posts. yeah, Because their hope, their joy, everything is hung on a sporting team. Their success, they're driven. It's going to die. Here's a really big one. I see people putting their hope in health and beauty, and body image, yeah? $1.2 billion is being spent by Australians on the fitness industry. Now, some of that is justified and needed to be healthy. Much of that is out of vanity, so that we would have bodies that people would marvel at, finely chiseled things, which, (laughs) thanks to gravity, are all going to sag, yeah? It's going (laughs) to disappear. I walked into... um, I've been crook for about four months and it's been frustrating me. So I thought I'm going to try anything and walked into a, a natural health shop and um, got a card that says on the back, he who has health has hope and he who has hope has everything. <laughs> now here I am sick thinking, well, that means I'm hopeless and got nothing. Now sure, it's relative sickness, <laughs> but one day we're all going to lose our health. Which means one day we're going to lose our hope and everything. Friends, that's how desperate people are for hope. But they're dying hopes. They're perishing hopes. But the hope that Peter describes here is one that is big, that is enduring, one that will never fade. He describes it as, have a look, verse 4, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. An inheritance now the concept of an inheritance is pretty easy yeah it's something of value that awaits us down the track that we look forward to but when we think of inheritance it's usually tinged with sadness either because your parents are still alive and they're retired and they're blowing your inheritance man yeah? they're like caravan and trips around the country and you're thinking I'm gonna have nothing and so it's tinged with sadness or Either you have received whatever your parents have left you, but it took their death for you to actually get it. It's tinged with sadness. There's no sadness about this inheritance, if your hope is in God. But what is it exactly? What is it? Because he doesn't actually kind of flesh it out and put heaps of detail on it. Well, firstly, notice in verse 4 that it's not simply heaven. Because he says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. So this inheritance is something in it, not just this concept of heaven. Now the New Testament has a really rich understanding of this inheritance. As you track it through, it's described in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, Here's just a couple of them. Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven rather than chasing wealth on earth. Treasure, it's something valuable. He describes it as the rewards for those who serve him faithfully on this earth. That is acknowledgement and recognition part of the inheritance. It includes our new bodies. Never again to age, get sick, sore and die. Amen? It's the new environment. Never to be spoiled. It's the new city in that environment. The Bible just doesn't have words. We don't have words to describe it adequately. It is so stunning. And in this new city, as part of our inheritance, is the new community, the new people of God. Never again to fight, only to know harmony with one another. This is just a few ways the Bible describes our inheritance. But the inheritance I think Peter has in mind here is the kingdom. Kingdom, because remember, his idea of rebirth has been shaped by Jesus, who says to Nicodemus, "I tell you, unless you are reborn, you will not see the kingdom of God." The kingdom, and if you've been with us through our series in Luke, you'll know that the kingdom of God is what is at the centre of Jesus's teaching. It's what he keeps coming back to, and you remember that to understand the kingdom of God, the kingdom is not so much the focus on the place. And the stuff in that place, but to focus on the king of that kingdom, his rule and his reign, and our right relationship under him. Our restored relationship with this king. That is what it means to be in the kingdom of God. That is what Peter's describing as our inheritance, which makes sense of the rebirth image because when you're born physically, you're born into relationship with your parents. When you are reborn spiritually, you're born into relationship with your heavenly Father. And come to chapter 3 verse 18 where Peter makes crystal clear the end point of your hope, the content, the goal. Where he says, "The Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous." Here it is. To bring you to God, to bring you to God. That is the goal of all of your hope, to be brought to God, which makes Jesus' perfect life, his substitutionary death, his victorious resurrection, it makes all of that, it makes our rebirth and our justification and our sanctification and our perseverance, it makes all of those things not ends in themselves but rather the means to the end of being brought to God. Friends, that's the centre of our hope. And if that doesn't excite you, pray that it would. That is what God has acted in history with the death of his son to achieve, to bring you back into relationship with himself, all to the praise of his glory. That is an amazing hope but it can be a difficult one for 21st century materialistic people to really appreciate because we are so used to fixing our attention and longing for material things. And so we look to the new bodies that we're going to get and the new environment that will be there and the new jobs and the new homes and, and all of those good things that are true and to be longed for, but the only reason they're to be longed for, the only reason they will be enjoyed is because they will be experienced In the presence of your God. It is into a relationship that you have been born. Uninhibited by sin when we get there. No more frustration. Unending. No more death. That's what awaits you if your hope is in Jesus. But lastly, on this inheritance... How can you be sure you're going to get there? How can you be sure it's going to be everything described? Well, two things. It, the inheritance, is kept for you by God. Secondly, you are kept for it by God. This is beautiful. Verse 4. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. That is, it is kept beyond the decaying forces of this world, which is why it cannot, will not perish, spoil or fade. It is kept beyond your happy or sad situation right now, which means even your experiences in life cannot damage it. It is kept there by God for you. But secondly, verse 5, you are kept for it, where we read, you through faith are being shielded by God's power. Now, notice this is the first time Peter speaks of our involvement in this hope. But till now, it's all God's doing. He's choosing. He's electing. His mercy. His rebirth. Now we're told how are we kept through faith by continuing to look to Jesus and trust in Him. That is how God will shield us. Will protect us, and that image of protection isn't kind of one of a a security camera that's high up on a street and some random guy kind of glancing at the screen. The image is one of a security detail, your own personal bodyguard. You know, the United, uh, the President of the United States, and the big, bald, beefy guys who have got his back. I reckon he feels pretty safe, pretty confident. But that is nothing compared to what you have you have God in his power the power that raised Jesus to life watching your back only on your good days when you're reading and praying and coming to church no 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 no. through faith not because of your performance but because you continuing to trust in the performance of another isn't that good news It doesn't rest on you. It rests in God and his power to keep you. How long is he going to do this? How long has he got your back? Verse 5, until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He's got your back until Jesus returns. That is good news. Your hope is secure. You are going to see it because God's going to get you there. Friends, keep trusting in Jesus. Satan, your sin, the lies of this world cannot diminish your inheritance or stop you from getting there. Keep trusting in him. Now, that's an amazing hope. God has rewritten our past, present and future hope. And so we just kind of stand back from that for a moment. Let me apply it to us in three ways. Firstly, reborn people rejoice. Reborn people rejoice. Have a look at verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice. It's a joy that he describes in verse 8 as an inexpressible and glorious joy. The New Testament keeps pointing to joy being the fruit of our hope. We have hope. The next link is our joy. And joy that is not at odds with suffering and disappointment. Because the hope that it stems from is kept outside of those things, so too is the means of our joy. Which means it's not at odds with hardship. Verse 6 onwards, he starts to describe how you guys are suffering. You guys are experiencing trials of all kinds. All kinds. That's a great comfort for me. Whatever the trial is, it's a trial of any kind. I can still have joy in it. In fact, he goes on to speak about a particular suffering they have, which is one for their love of Jesus. Their persecution, a world that is against them. There is joy to be had in that hardship, friends, whatever it is. Joy from a hope kept outside of this world for us. I'm not talking about a, a cheesy plastic Christian external, yeah? And I know, you weep, you cry. The Bible acknowledges the pain and the reality of this life. But deep down underneath all of that is a joy. Your soul says, yes, that is what I have. That is what is coming. That is what will get you there. Continue trust in the God of that hope. But if joy is the fruit of hope, then what do we make of our diminished joy? Well, there's a few reasons. But one reason for our diminished joy is our diminished view of our hope. If we haven't understood and taken hold of the hope that we have, we're not going to get the joy that God says he intends from. it. Now sometimes it's because you just don't know enough, but actually new Christians, man, they're the most joyous people, and they hardly know much. I think the reason for us that we so often lack our joy is because we just don't look at it. In the Word, we're not reading about it and thinking about it and longing for it and meditating on it. We're so consumed with just the things of life, yeah? Which are realities, but we're consumed by them. Are you looking at this hope that God has told you so much about so that you would have joy now? Are you looking at it? Secondly, reborn people revalue. Revalue. See... Christians are born again into a living hope with a new measure for what is valuable and worthwhile, what is worthy. Peter, in his letter, goes on to unpack a whole bunch of things that he tells his reborn Christians to revalue, revalue. One of them that he hits is beauty, beauty. Now, this applies to you men as well, but particularly for you ladies. Let's chat beauty. Let's talk about revalue and beauty. Come, on, come to um, chapter three. Recent studies have found that 4% of women consider themselves beautiful. 96 out of 100 women are crushed under our culture's narrow and unrealistic Standard of beauty. Peter says to the reborn person, you don't have to play along. You've been reborn into a new way of understanding beauty and it's not one that you will see in Cosmopolitan. Have a look with me. Chapter 3, verse 3. You, your beauty should not come from outward Adornment, externals, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. That's a cultural comment, yeah? The time that Peter's writing, they're the things that the women would chase after. That, that was the standard of beauty. For us, he might have said, such as a big bust and height and curvy hips and full lips. Whatever the standard beauty is, yeah? Verse 5, oh, sorry, verse 4. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. A reborn woman now sees beauty to be what God sees beauty. And in verse 5, For this is the way the holy women of the past Who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. Ladies, if your hope is in God, you are beautiful because God has adorned you with the beauty of His Son, He has dressed you in the unblemished righteousness of Jesus. Do you know that when you look in the mirror? You have been freed from chasing after impossibilities. You won't be fully freed until you meet Jesus. But you have the hope that one day you will be and that he will transform you until that day so that more and more and more you will take your identity for what he says it is. Which means you need to keep coming Back to the word to find your true identity. You are beautiful. Husbands, continue to affirm your wife's appearance. But are you affirming her true beauty if her hope is in God? Do you see how beautiful it is? A gentle, quiet spirit. A woman who is at peace with God. Parents, be talking to your daughters about this before Cosmopolitan does. Be talking to your sons about true beauty before Ralph Magazine does. I've got three kids, four, two, and one, one daughter, Tiffany. She's gorgeous. She's what the world is going to say, beautiful, stunning. Oh, we are just praying and pouring so much energy into sweetheart, you love Jesus more than your dresses. That is where your beauty is. Reborn people revalue. Thirdly, reborn people live as refugees. We're elect exiles living away from our native home. Which means we haven't arrived and we don't settle. That dream house in Terrigal, you have not arrived. Let the bumps and bruises and frustrations and disappointments of your life on the central coast remind you that you are living in a refugee camp. Someone cut off from their native home who is looking to it and longing for it. Have you seen pictures of a refugee camp? They're nothing special. They're set up as temporary residents for the exile who is just longing to cross the border into their home. Which means, friends, we have this constant tension that we need to keep coming back to of loosening our grip on the things in this refugee camp that will perish, spoil and fade continued tension to do that. And so that we would use the things that we have, the resources God has blessed us for the sake of his kingdom, that kingdom that we have been reborn into, that relationship with him. Friends, hold loosely to the things that will perish, spoil and fade and fix your gaze and cling to your inheritance of hope that never will. We need help to do that yet yeah? but I pray that God to do that. Uh, Father, we want to praise you for just who you are, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is just so beautiful uh, we see a reflection of that in this amazing place that you've put us. But Father, you are so merciful you have. Shown amazing loving kindness to ill-deserving people like us. It has been your free choice. We thank you. We do not deserve it, but we thank you for it. Father, for those here who do not know the hope of being with you into eternity, please, by your Spirit, replace a hard heart of stone with a living, breathing heart of flesh. We thank you for the cost that you paid to bring us this hope. Help us, please, to fix our eyes on it, that it might energise us to live lives that really please you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.